This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered what really happened at the Council of Nicaea, or how India's Golden Age began? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, we got a big show ahead of us today. But one thing you and I are going to have to have a long talk about, a very serious talk about, is that you traveled all the way across the Atlantic First time in New York City, and where did you eat? A bloody olive garden. The breadstick defense shall not save you. Those breadsticks are super tasty. That is correct, Paul, yes. But why did you bring it up right now? That was about like two... That, that was actually... You know what, Paul? I reckon three years ago, to this day of recording, we were probably in New York. Hence, why is that why you're mentioning it now? <laughs> I was in New York, maybe even having dinner with you this very time, three years ago, you know, we were discussing. May, you know, it very, very well be exactly that three-year anniversary. Good, good on you, my friend. <laughs> no, the reason I bring it up now is because I stumbled across a video you dropped recently where you were answering questions. I think it was, can the internet guess my name or something like that? Yes. And you mentioned it in there, and I thought to myself, <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, no. I was talking to my wife this morning, and I said... I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm not sure that I can vouch for him to St. Peter anymore. So no, we'll Look, all, have a long talk about that. All I will say is if you're in the UK, you have a very specific image of what a breadstick is in your mind. It's a it's like a piece of cardboard. It's a very thin, long piece of cardboard, more or less. An olive garden breadstick is like a soft little doughy loaf of goodness. I'm sure you guys in, in the in America are sick to death of them. My God, when Olive Garden offered me breadsticks, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll try some of those breadsticks. And I was blown away. So call me a heretic, expel me from the podcast, but gosh, oh, I will no, defend no, that we will not be expelling you. To the grave. But you are being chastised. <laughs> you are being chastised. Shamed. Oh, well, no, not shamed, but just simply chastised. I don't believe in shaming. But <laughs> so today we actually have a, an extremely interesting episode. We have a Patreon no submitted question, involved. which is a really interesting hypothetical question that we were given. But today in the first segment, I'm going to be discussing the, the famed, though very poorly understood in many cases, First Council of Nicaea. And you, my friend, in the third and final segment, are going to be discussing something that we kind of teased in a way in our What We Missed episode because we had to catch up for it because of everything we did in the third century but it's something where the biggest thrust of history happened now, which, of course, is truly the founding of the incredible Gupta Empire on the Indian subcontinent. And I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you guys. It was very, very interesting to read into and just seeing 
And it's great to catch up with India. We haven't really looked all that much into India in this podcast, but to see where India is and where it was and where it's going is darn fascinating. It really sort of starts here. We kind of touch on it in certain points. Yeah. This is great because we get to focus on it heavy duty. Mm-hmm. So with all of that out of the way, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. What? Evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. So, Paul, back again, Emperor Constantine, he is turning that empire to Christianity one way or another, bit by bit. And this is a major step, it would seem, in that conversion of the empire. So, Paul, could you please talk to us about the First Council of Nicaea? Of course. And I think it is best to set the scene. As we so exclusively and at great length talked about Constantine's rise to power, and by this point, what's becoming the consolidation of the entire power, not just the West, but the East as well, we're beginning to see how Constantine began to influence Christianity very directly in ways that have profound impact to this day. In fact, something that's interesting about Constantine, even though he was very new to Christianity, he was very much involving himself in various matters of the church from pretty early on, and this would continue throughout his rule. And in 325 AD, some, a very, very fascinating event happened, one that has been, become known, thanks to Dan Brown, to a great many people, but it's very poorly understood, unfortunately. And this, of course, is what we know today as the first council of Nicaea that was called by Constantine to help achieve a greater doctrinal understanding of the Christological nature of Jesus. And it lasted from May to August 325 and was held in Asia Minor, a.k.a. Turkey, in the settlement of Nicaea. And basically, there were two things that this particular council was seeking to create a greater common understanding about in regards to Jesus and the nature of divinity and Jesus. And it really boils down to this. Was he the same as God, or was he separate from God? These are the major questions that they sought to hash out. Nicaea was the first of the initial seven ecumenical councils that occurred over the next three centuries, concluding with quite appropriately, the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, all of which were intended to hash out some greater matter of Christianity or another. And when we say ecumenical, that's with really good purpose, because in this case, ecumenical means involving numerous churches in this case. So there wasn't just one church even at this time. There were many different followings and sects and all of these different elements of Christianity by the time of the early 4th century, and you're trying to bring them all together. And so naturally, in this case, when we're going forward, it said that roughly 1,800 bishops were invited from across the empire, but obviously not all of them were able to attend, but quite a few did, though we do not have an exact number. 
And Paul, you just mentioned earlier Christology. What exactly is that? Christology, apologies, Christology, Christology. Uh, What exactly is that? That's really what's at the heart of the matter here, interestingly enough. So more or less by definition, Christology, simply put, is the theological study and sometimes debate of the divine nature of Jesus himself. Hence, it is the major point of contention for this particular council. And so is that what the main reason why Constantine called this council? He thought we needed to figure out what's going on with this religion and like just just kind of solidify everything about it. You've seen there are so many different sects of it by the fourth century. It was all up in so many places. It seems that Constantine wanted to call this council to try and solidify things. More or less, we're looking for some clarification here, which on paper is a wonderful idea. In practicality, that's something that's obviously extremely difficult. And it's important to note, even though the Council of Nicaea did come to certain conclusions, it's also important to note that it by no means settled the debate on this. So you figure it makes sense, though, too, because Constantine at this point, as we discussed, is still relatively new to Christianity, right? And in his being new to Christianity, from just a very logical point from which to proceed, this seems like something you would really want to get a better grasp on, right? Yeah, and something that's really coming to my uh, mind for me when reading this is we've got such an, a set idea of what exactly Christianity is to us that it's, it's kind of crazy to think that this sort of council had to happen to try and solidify what exactly that is. Because to me and you, we, we, we have a pretty good understanding of what exactly Christianity is. Sure, there's different sects of it. You've got Protestantism, uh, uh, Orthodoxy, uh, Catholicism at this day, but we understand, but to go to a point in time when that wasn't set in stone yet, and we've talked about this in the past with previous episodes when we talked about the writing of the Gospels and that early version of the New Testament, I forget its name exactly, and it's just another friendly reminder that uh, Christianity just didn't come to the party fully prepared. It took a long while to get to what it became. I, I just, believe you're referring great to the diatessaron, correct? The diatessaron. I knew it was a big confusing word, and it's just a great example of how Christianity wasn't just this thing from the get-go. It wasn't all of a sudden Jesus died in 33 AD and boom, Christianity happened. It took a long time to get to where it is. It absolutely did. And the whole concept around Christ and Christ's divinity, honestly, is something that has not even come to a common understanding to this day. And to some extent, it's almost somewhat pointless in a way to try to suss it out, even in modern terms, certainly, because Christianity has gone in so many directions over 2,000 years now. There are so many different elements that believe certain aspects of it that don't necessarily concur with other followings and their understanding of it. So, But we're still early on, and they're at the very least trying to come to this matter. And it made sense in the case of Constantine to say, hey, you know, we, we probably should try and figure this out. So it, that, that hmm. does make sense insofar as it goes. So, but how did all these other church leaders exactly feel about Constantine's intervention to call this council? Like, would not seen as him interfering with the church. Ooh, well, you know what? They're in an interesting position, as I understand it. First off, from what I can tell, they seem to be a bit overwhelmed. And you think about their experience up to this point in 325, and you can certainly understand it, because it really wasn't even that long ago that they were being formally persecuted by the Roman authorities, and in particular at the directive of a Roman emperor, as we know, who is Diocletian. So they're a bit, you know, overwhelmed, but it does seem to be accepted in a rather positive manner, despite the fact this is a total whiplash for them, if you think about it. Yeah, it's just the fact that you have a Roman emperor who has, one, embraced Christianity, goodness gracious, 
and now is actually actively involving himself in church affairs, I don't think many of them found themselves in a position to complain, especially when you hear stories about those who did attend and apparently being able to see like various injuries that they incurred at the time of these formal persecutions that now, oh my goodness, we have official sanction. It is. And in the same way I just said how long it took Christianity to form into what it is, how, conversely, how quickly Rome went from disliking Christianity to being Christian itself. Like I said, it was less than 100 years ago, less than 50 years ago or so, that people were being punished and persecuted for being Christian. As you just mentioned, it's just crazy when you put it in, into perspective like that. It just takes one person to have a different opinion. And suddenly the entire empire has changed. And that's just wild. It, it absolutely is. So we're looking at a period of just a little over 20 years yeah. from the formal first edict given by Diocletian in 303 to here we are today in the summer of, what, 325? 325 discussing this with official sanction where the emperor is actually having a, a very particular role in all of this. It's incredible for them. So. They're handling this on a, on a pretty positive manner. You know, they're definitely not going to start biting the hand that feeds them at this point. You know, they're not fools. But the question now is, so what is the main point of strife? How, how did we ever get here? And largely as this thing goes, this really boils down to a fellow by the name of Arius, who was from Saronica, which today is basically modern northwest Egypt. For the most part, maybe Libya. I'm not 100% sure, but right there, right up there on the northern Mediterranean coast. And he was a priest, and he was a priest that was teaching that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was a being that was separate from God. Very important. There's no underlying, you know, there's no denying the importance that Jesus has in this case. But Jesus is not God. God itself. And for Arius, this was a point of major revelation to him, though but this was in direct contrast to the general understanding and mostly organic consensus by many Christian leaders at the time that Jesus was so-called co-eternal with God. That means when he died, he goes back into this non-corporeal existence. He was God made flesh. And he existed from the beginning as God did as well. So you can definitely understand where this point of contention surely exists and why it's as big of a deal as it is. And this is an issue that still seems to be a thing to this day. I've asked Christian friends, because I've never quite known this myself, a God and Jesus meant to be one and the same. And every time I've asked Christian friends, there's never been a clear cut yes or no answer. So by and large, Paul, do not Christians of today believe on, on this matter? It varies just as much as it did in the early 4th century, let's put it that way. There are many different takes on this, from the concept of Jesus being wholly divine, co-equal to God, going back into eternity from the beginning of existence, to somebody that was born human and died human, but during that time, came to a greater revelation. Those are, I mean, that's how far the spectrum goes. In many of these cases, especially when you're talking about Christianity that has so many different denominations and so many different followings within those denominations, it's very difficult to agree square on anything. 
So the reason you're getting so many different answers is because in many ways for a lot of people, and certainly throughout Christianity in its various iterations, there is no one answer. And it's interesting because so often in Christianity, whenever you have a problem, you go to the Bible for the answer. So that makes me wonder, like, did Jesus, is there any writings in the Bible that confirm this tool? Like, did Jesus ever flat out call himself God in the Bible or the New Testament or anything? This is tricky. This is super tricky. So as we know, we have the four Gospels that eventually became canon. We're going to discuss this particular issue more at the end because there's a lot of confusion over this regarding Nicaea. But let, let's just look at this one particular point, which is that in the New Testament, it seems in the Gospel of John, which from all we can tell was the last one to be written relative to the other three that became canon, that there are definitely certain inference that he is divine. But also that's something that is very much in line with how that particular gospel, in this case being John, generally operates. John is very different than the other three. We've talked about this quite tangentially in the episodes prior where we're talking about the New Testament and Jesus and all of that. It's much more supernatural in nature, very much different than the other three. So there definitely does seem to be some allusion to that in John. And of the other three, of which they kind of separate the, the Mark, Matthew, and Luke from John, just given the incredibly different nature of those writings. In Mark, there is something basically like the, the divinity secret, where throughout it, when you're reading it, there is this ongoing idea that Jesus is withholding the knowledge that he's actually divine. So this is a very difficult answer to try to get directly from the four Gospels in the New Testament themselves. So, you know, be that as it may. But getting back to Arius, Arius fell afoul of somebody that ultimately caused this greater council to end up being convened in the first place, and that is St. Alexander of Alexandria. Quite easy to remember, <laughs> I think. He was a bishop and obviously, like I said, St. Alexander, so he became a saint. And hmm. St. Alexander of Alexandria was to totally the, the other way than Arius. He believed that Jesus was co-eternal with God. So you have these two very differing pieces here in terms of, well, how do we understand the Christological nature of Jesus himself? And this thing lasted three months. <laughs> it took three months to hash out. And you can only imagine what it must have been like going through that process in those walls over three months in the middle of summer in modern-day Turkey. That is a feat, just thinking of it on a practical level, if I've ever heard one. It sounds like the film 12 Angry Men to an extent, just this hot and bothered room with lots of people arguing uh, arguing in it. Anybody who's sat through long committee meetings in less than pleasant circumstances <laughs> is most certainly going to have a sympathy and empathy for what this was like enduring it, that it probably was. And you have to imagine some very strong words and very strong opinions were being thrown around the entire time. And so what did this three months in Nicaea really achieve? Well, at the end of the day, the council ended up very much siding with Alexander of Alexandria and his conception of Jesus, mostly having to do with the fact that they felt for the most part it conformed best with the scriptures that they were using and just the general understanding of Christianity and Jesus at the time. And what came of it, interestingly enough, 
is something known as the Nicene Creed. Now, their version of the Nicene Creed and the Nicene Creed that so many Christians have undoubtedly either heard or repeated themselves in whatever in case of like mass or any sort of service that they've been to, these things are a bit different. And when I read out their Nicene Creed, you'll probably see some of the differences between the two. So their Nicene Creed went as such. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten that is in the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, also known as homokousian, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. There was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is made of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable or alterable, they condemn by the Holy Catholic and Espotic Church. So basically, and some of that were some academic little bars there to help us better understand mm. as the reader the exact context of what they were saying, but that's generally what it came to. That's like a lot to take in there, like so many. Definitely, and that's a very limited, sounds, that, think about it, that's a yeah. very limited conclusion based on where they could have gone. And like some of it sounds almost contradictory, like he was not before he was made. That's kind of hard. And like he was made out of nothing. It's like, it's hard to get your head around what exactly that's supposed to mean. Yeah. But something yeah. I'm interested in, do you have any records of this, um, of this council, the Council of Nicaea? Does anything still exist to this day to prove that it actually even happened? Well, we know that it happened. Okay. Yeah. We know that it happened. The question is, what were the various arguments and the debates that happened while it was in session? And while there's very good reason to believe that there was somebody there taking minutes as they would, because they're coming out of a Roman tradition in terms of bookkeeping for the most part. They know mm. how to run a council. They know how to make sure that they get the agenda taken down and write in shorthand who did what. They were capable of this quite so. And you have to imagine it existed, but unfortunately, we have not found any copies or records of it. The Really, the biggest thing that came out of it in this case was that Nicene Creed above. And what I can tell you this is, though, when we start getting into the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, those are mm. all, in that case, academic notes that help suss out exactly the context of it for scholars that have studied this in great detail. Largely, for the most part, it ends and with the words, and in the Holy Ghost, for the most part, for their mm. purposes. Though, like I said, the Nicene Creed has changed. That is not a version of it that most people today will be familiar with. But in terms of like taking minutes and things of that nature, you have to imagine they took them. We just haven't found them. Gosh, that'd be a good find. That sounds like a drop for Nicolas Cage or something. <laughs> Watch your tongue. <laughs> so um, speaking of, no, not speaking of Nicolas Cage, what happened to um, Arius, the guy who kind of still got the ball rolling all of this? What happened to him, the Egyptian dude? Yeah, he was exiled. The Egyptian dude. Yeah. He was, oh, he was okay, exiled. Then. He was exiled, as you imagine. But it didn't stop him, and the controversy didn't end here. In truth, the controversy will never end. That's kind of the odd point of it all. 
and something I find interesting about this is uh, Arius. I think am I pronouncing that right? Arius. Arius. Yes. Arius. Yes. He he ended up being quite a pivotal role in Christianity, and that's what I find interesting. As I was mentioning back when we mentioned about that early form of the New Testament, there were these figures who really did move the religion forward, but aren't as well known to say like, would your average Christian know of Arius and the role he played in their religion? So I believe there are Arian Christians out there. Mm-hmm. If if not directly and noting him by name or certainly operating very much on the basis in which he taught, I've seen this firsthand. It's one of those things where you believe what you believe, I suppose, but he definitely had an ongoing legacy. And this did not stop him, even though he was exiled and he did keep teaching. And interestingly enough, over time, even Constantine himself became more tolerant and kind of open to this idea that Arius was teaching, but he would end up dying in 336, and it's often suspected, I should add, that he did so due to poisoning from those who opposed him. You might have been able to kill Arius, but you couldn't kill the idea. I guess something I find interesting, Paul, that just came to mind, is in regards to Rome's previous religion, the, um, you know, the Roman mythology, aka Greek mythology, is those stories were interpreted in many different ways. I'm sure even in the time of Rome itself, there were multiple different stories of Heracles and Zeus and all that sort of thing going on. So this was a group, this was a group of people who had learned to follow one religion but different interpretations of the same religion, but they just couldn't do that with Christianity. They had to be like, this is the way Christianity was. Arius, no, your way's wrong. Like, and as you said, there are Arius followers of the more Arius style of uh, Christianity to this day, potentially. Oh, and yeah. It's just interesting that at the time they weren't quite that. They thought Christianity had to be this one specific thing and work in this one specific way where they'd already come from a religion that had kind of interpreted the same stories in different ways anyway. That's actually a really good point to to mention here. They they certainly seem to have, whether knowingly un, or unknowingly, imbibed some of these greater traditions in terms of these stories when it comes to in this case, say, the the Greco-Roman gods, whether Roman paganism or the Hellenistic religion of the Greeks. So, yeah, that's actually a really fine point. But what's interesting here, and I think this is the thing that's kind of like the 500-pound gorilla in the room, <laughs> is, of course, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Yes, and you mentioned The Da Vinci Code earlier. And is there actually any evidence that the canon of the Bible was discussed or determined there, or that Constantine even had any hand in their choosing? Not that I'm aware of. If there is documentation that that actually came up, it's new to me, and it's something that most scholars generally are not that keen on, to be sure. There just isn't enough evidence there to say one way or the other. For the most part, most major scholars of Christianity, when it comes to the actual formation of the New Testament and the books that ultimately become the canon that we know today, happen over a much longer period of time and a much more organic process, almost like they were choosing themselves in a way over time. So as far as Mm. I can tell and the research that I've done, this is something that is often very much opposed to this idea of anything having to do with what's going on regarding the books of the New Testament being discussed here, determined here, or or Constantine having any role in that. So unfortunately, for the most part, Nicaea is important because of the whole debate regarding the divinity of Jesus and is Jesus God, is Jesus co-eternal with God, or is he something separate from God? 
from what I know and what I have read and what I have heard, matters regarding what's going into the New Testament and who's choosing it and it being chosen here or Constantine having any role in it whatsoever does not seem to be the case. So do you want to know something quite controversial, Paul? Well, lay it on me, Mr. Foot. I have never watched nor read The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather watch Gladiator first. Well, this is what I'm thinking. We should definitely either do Gladiator or The Da Vinci Code for our next Daily History Watches. I think it would be quite Ooh, appropriate that's a, this time. That's a spicy one. I like <laughs> those <bill>. ideas. <laughs> I like those ideas. But I've heard, I've heard a mix of things. I've heard it's a very easy sort of read and watch. Very interesting. But like, like I mentioned um, Nicolas Cage earlier, and that's, of course, in Ode to the National Treasure films, which are fantastic films. I have no one argued that. And they're also things we should watch at some point, Paul, because they're great films. We have such a laundry list of films that we can do for AD History Watches. Well, Paul, thank you so much for sharing that information with us. This seems like a real massive step for Rome, this uh, Council of Nicaea. Like I said, we're getting closer and closer to a Christian Rome, which in turn gives us a Christian Europe, which in turn gives us modern Europe, more or less. And it's fascinating to see it all sort of starting here so far back in time. It's true. And something to note here in terms of Constantine's role in Rome going more the Christian route, one is Rome was starting to largely go the Christian route organically before he even converted. That's one of the mm. things we discussed a couple episodes back when you're asking about why Rome had such an issue with Christianity. And one of them is because it was an organic movement that was getting bigger and bigger over time. Two, with all the patronage and all of the things that were really beneficial to the church that Constantine did, he was not actually the emperor who officially made it the official religion. That comes a little bit later, and we'll tease that for a bit later. Mm -hmm. So these are things to think about, but this was the general idea behind Nicaea. It was a good swipe. Naturally, it did have some lasting impacts, but even to this day in Christianity throughout it in its many various iterations, there's still no agreement on what is the theological nature of Jesus. But this was a very important point, one, because now they're formally doing it out in the open with official sanction, and we're beginning to see how Constantine, through his involvement in various elements of Christianity and the church, unintentionally in a way, begins to mold it as well. So this was definitely something I wanted to do and get into a little bit, just so we could get our ABCs on this one straight. But after this, we're going to get into our Patreon-submitted question, which is going to be a real, real banger, I'll tell you that. I'm looking forward to this one. So, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. And thank you, Anna. So, Paul, we are back with our famous middle segment where one of our amazing patrons submitted a question for us. And this week's question is an interesting one. It's one I haven't really got a defined answer for, so I'm looking to chat uh, to you about it, Paul. And the question is, if you were to encounter a time traveller from one of our countries travelling to the present from 1980, how would you explain and indoctrinate them to our present day? So, Paul, I'm going to throw this one to you. 1980s USA to modern-day USA. Uh, how would you go about explaining what's changed in those 40-odd years? Gosh, it's been 40 years. Now, in my head, the 80s was only 20 years ago, but no, 40 years ago now. 
that's a basket full. And I got to say, it's a really good Patreon submitted question. And if you want to submit a Patreon submitted question that we answer in the middle segment of our show, donate at the $5 tier or higher. Send the message to us, put in the question, and we'll end up answering it. So we thank our patron for submitting this question today. Now, getting down to the actual answer, I think the first thing that came to mind is, well, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is that the Cold War is over with the Soviet Union. The bad news is we're in a new Cold War with China. (laughs) Just getting that out of the way. Well, first off, it makes you appreciate just how much has changed in the little over 40 years that we're talking about. And I mean, in a huge way, a huge way has things changed. And so the first question is, I mean, where do you even start with something like that? And, you know, first things first, I think it would take a good deal of time. I mean, in fact, if this was the only person who ever did it, whoever traveled to our time from that particular year or earlier, you would probably want to sit down and figure out a whole mess of things that you would want them to know about and try to get them up to speed on. I suppose the first thing that I would choose to do, and I think this is kind of a natural idea just given how much it's revolutionized our society, is we would have to begin explaining the internet. Yeah. It was starting to be a thing. Probably not to the average person. Definitely not. Definitely not. uh, To the military, it was becoming a thing. But I feel like if you're time traveling, you probably got an under. If you're time traveling in the 80s, you probably have some sort of understanding of the internet anyway. Because maybe, but not likely. (laughs) Not not from like 1980 itself. Yeah, most people don't even have a personal computer. Yeah, but yeah, definitely explain the internet would be very very pivotal. But how would you do that? What would you compare the internet to? So it's like a magazine. It's like a newspaper, but on a screen like how would you explain it that's the thing is because even if they did have some like very mild conception of what the internet might be it would in no way comport with how we understand the internet and its incarnation as it exists today because you figure the internet became a thing really to the public where we could access it in a meaningful way in the mid 90s so we're literally talking about a, a decade and a half beyond when they took off and by internet, you mean the World Wide Web itself. Correct. Like the actual, yeah, yeah. Being able to it, sit down, yeah. open a browser, put in an address, that sort of thing. Yeah. And you also can't take for granted how our understanding of the internet has evolved and things that we take for granted. Let's take, here's a great example. Take text messaging. Mm. Text messaging doesn't mean the same thing if you didn't live through things like AOL Instant Messenger or Trillion, things of that nature, where in many cases, text messaging is in some ways an outgrowth of even that. And that's really, in that case, you're almost talking about Internet 1.0 or things like email, for example, or the, the nature of how we communicate in general and just this instantaneous ability that we now possess, not even in need of a personal computer on a desktop to be able to access this thing largely unhindered despite the device that we're using. At least one Star Wars film, my, my Star Wars timeline isn't perfect. Surely at least one had come out by 1980. Well, the first one came out in 77. 77. So was was the second one 81? 80 is when we get Empire and 83 okay, 80. is Jedi. Okay, but but that's that must have some form of instant messaging on it. Like, well, let's just hope they've seen Star Wars. What? And can we try and explain? Like, I'm trying to find a point of reference to explain 
to someone, it's kind of like that thing you've seen. Like I'm trying to think of things that have been made by the 80, by 1980, that depicted a f- depicted something vaguely like the internet. Star Wars is coming to mind. I I mean, in a way, it does, but I don't. Not really so much in the original trilogy. No, I guess you, not. You no. might have seen it in the prequels, but if you're a Star Wars fan that's traveling from 1980 and it, you're leaving at a point before Empire has been dropped. Well, I have good news for you, man. You're going to catch up real fast on how the initial saga ends, and God only knows what your opinions are going to be on the prequels to say nothing of the dreaded sequels. But um, there's a lot to catch up on there, but the internet is really, at least I think, probably the one thing where you kind of have to start just because of how it affects literally everyday life. And also, once you teach them how to use the internet, they can learn for themselves because the, they could catch up pretty quickly on what happened in the 40 inter, intermittent years and the 40 between years just by understanding how to use Wikipedia. That's true, but in, a more, in terms of communicating a more human understanding of mm. those who actually went through it, I think it's something that would probably be my greater emphasis. So. You know, despite the quip I made at the beginning of the Cold War, naturally, that's something they're going to want to know about, which is in 1980, there was no reason to believe that the Soviet Union would end up collapsing 11 years later. No, no, you're very much in the depths of the Cold War by 1980 still. Yeah, things didn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Most certainly not. And on top of that, what happened to the world when it went away? How how did this change the nature mm. of our two countries, which in a very serious way, it, it did? Because we were both in the West, we were both countries that were targeted, you know, in terms of mutually assured destruction. Those were things that hung over the head of of both our countries throughout that time. And on top of that, then, you know, if you're you're trying to give them a general bullet point catch-up, then you have to explain everything that happened regarding 9-11. Yeah. Which obviously is its own basket, to be sure. mm, I'm trying to think where the UK was. So was Thatcher... In power by 80 or she 81? I thought she came into power in around 79. I know it was like on the cusp of the 80s. So, so yeah, if you're coming from Britain from the 1980s, you're probably just seeing the early days of Thatcher's, uh, Thatcher's uh, administration. I would let our time-traveling friend know that while Thatcher isn't gone, her legacy very much remains. And that can be seen with the likes of our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. But just the sure. world we're living in, it was Thatcher who closed the mines. She sold off a lot of uh she sold off a lot of um council housing. And it's those sorts of things that still have ramifications. So this day she privatized a lot of other things. We are fundamentally still living in Thatcher's Britain. And that's something I have to let them know. So in some ways, not much has changed in the grand scheme. But how I would explain and indoctrinate them in our present day, I think you're right, Paul. The internet is a great way to go because it is so fundamental to our present day. I'm trying to think if there's any specific TV shows I'd make them watch to understand what how, how to understand what today is like or what books I'd make them read or what news sources I'd make them watch to understand how really things good are going points. as well. Really good yeah. points. I'm just trying to think. Nothing's coming to mind. We've got Bake Off, of course, which is very homely and British. Maybe get them to sit and watch some great British Bake Off, that sort of thing. But I don't know off the top of my head. I think the internet is a great way to go. And just as like I said, trying to make them understand how to use the internet, whether that be on a smartphone, even explain to them what a smartphone is. I mean, they'll probably have a concept of a computer because I think 
big beige computer boxes must have existed by 1980 oh, or kind of in the, yeah, and we're in the public conscious no yeah but they're in the public conscious so you can kind of understand like the iMac I'm looking at right now you can kind of understand how the big beige box of the 80s became an iMac of today but understanding a smartphone must be mind-boggling like that's yeah let's take the smartphone that's currently in my hand it's one of the newer <laughs> editions of the iPhone Obviously, we're recording this in the first week of November of 2021. If I handed this device with full operability, where it has all the capabilities that can be used as designed to myself in the summer of 2005, my mind would be blown away. And you hand the same device to this hypothetical 1980s, 1980 time traveler and it would be more than I think many of us could take in at just one go, given all that it can do and how much, on an exponential basis, how much more powerful it is to the computers of their day. And even telling them that it's not only the really fancy people who have one of these, everyone has one. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. something that is absolutely commonplace. And we've we've our experience as human beings on the day to day have been wholly integrated with it. That's yeah, the thing that's interesting to understand mm, there. It's just everywhere you go, you'll find the internet, you'll find smartphones, you'll find Wi-Fi and technology. And that would be the the fundamental thing to teach them. However, so I'm wondering, Paul, if if they were like, I don't like this, I want to go somewhere like the 1980s. Where would you take them? Where hasn't changed in the USA since the 1980s? You could take them. Well, I mean, if you're just walking down the street on the everyday, <laughs> if you're, you know, just say strolling through lower Manhattan or something like mm. that, I don't think that anything would necessarily appear that alien to them. You Gosh, know, there, there may be some subway routes that exist now that didn't exist then or things of that nature, but you would start getting bogged down in the details of mm. how we pay for things or how various, you know, transactions occur that would be entirely alien to them. And they might even be asking, why is everyone wearing face masks? <laughs> well, that's the other thing we have to very much explain in terms of what's going on there. And that would be its own whole thing, to be sure. Yeah. But you start with the internet, because I don't think you can start anywhere else. You try to give them as best as possible a grasp on the political realities that have occurred since they took off up into the present day and, and the landscape that exists there. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about this question is, is I think it says as much about the person answering it as it does about the answers themselves and how it would affect our hypothetical time traveler. Mm, it kind of ex explains, it shows what the, look, me and you, it shows what our priorities are more or less. The first thing we both went to say is to make a dig about the political climate of both times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's true. And, you know, we mm. talk about the internet. The internet is entirely central to how you and I make a living. Exactly, yeah. Like, especially to me and you, like, say if they were to meet our parents, if they were to meet, would, would our parents be as inclined to say, hey, like, check the internet? Because maybe it's not as ubiquitous in their life. Our parents probably came from the 1980s, Paul. They were there. Yeah. So maybe this, that would be interesting as well. This person, yeah. in all likelihood, would be our parents' age today. And then, you know, you get into other bigger things. You know, if we're talking the politics, we talk about the rise of China, which had only been in its most nascent state in 1980 with the reforms and opening up under Deng Xiaoping. Or... Mm. Uh, the nature of economic reality today, the ability to work from home, 
how entertainment has changed, how we relate to each other, just a whole bunch of things that we couldn't even begin to get into in just like one solid introductory session. You, know, you would have to handhold them for quite a long time because you figure there's probably also a ton of various mores and faux pas that did not exist in 1980 that exist today. And I can't even begin to think of them all. You know, no, just, exactly. yeah. it's, 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 they wouldn't be totally alien because they'd still be human. They would still be generally of a modern era. They have the ability to adapt, but it would mm. take time, a lot of time and exposure and, and a lot of work. Who's going to break the news about blockbusters to them, Paul? Uh, <laughs> I mean, did, did blockbuster even exist in 1980 in the way Gosh. we understood it? I don't know. I just I mean, they had video rental stores, I think, but yeah, they must have done. That's another key example. Or you look at things like video games. My goodness, how much mm. of those have changed in that time? Think about that yeah, for a moment. I, Mario was two years. It was Mario was still two years away to put it into perspective. Nineteen eighty-two. Yeah, I believe eighty-three, eighty-five. I think eighty-five can go. That's my final answer, Paul. Eighty-five. Oh, yeah. yes, of course. And you have won the million dollar question. Yeah, th these are all these little bits and pieces of, of cultural insight that this person just wouldn't have. And so it's incredibly difficult. And here's an interesting kind of sub question to this. How far back could we realistically go in terms of a time travel origination point where they would still have the ability to genuinely adapt? I think anything post-war. Off the top of my head, I think post Maybe even post First World War. Maybe. Like, I mean, they had radio then, obviously, so that yeah. wouldn't be unusual. They didn't have TV yet, really. No, maybe po I, I, maybe post Second World War, which in the grand scheme isn't that far back. But that's how far I would go. I would say maybe post World War Two. So nineteen forty-five. You couldn't really do it before that. Yeah. Maybe nineteen fifty. Even you know that's kind of yeah. a good mentally satisfying point of demarcation that before that. It probably wouldn't go so well. I mean, it's hard to no. tell by the individual, of course, but on the whole, I would say you couldn't really go earlier than the end of the Second World War. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm leading towards as well, because just the world changed so much. No, like everyone had been lived through so much. The people who were alive prior to the Second World War, and people who were alive prior, it's just just diff different people. Undeniably so, and a lot of which having to do with the circumstances, all of which are almost essentially out of the, their control of which they live. But even think about like the interpersonal connections and the various, you know, references and and quips that we make due to a common cultural understanding from any number of, say, media franchises or products that we just kind of give to each other offhand that we almost intuitively understand that they wouldn't get whatsoever. It's almost like we'd be speaking a second language. They could catch up, but it would take a lot of time. Funnily enough, superheroes have kind of come full circle, Paul. Haven't by they? 19... Yeah. yeah, I guess Batman was 81. The Superman films would have been out by then. Uh, Marvel would begin the 60s, as would DC, of course. And like, yeah, superheroes are still about, but like, instead of reading comic books, you watch them on the screen. So like, some things have kind of come full circle. And the 80s is also kind of in vogue at the moment. And of course, by 1980 itself, what we consider 80s culture probably was yeah, wasn't a thing yet. Like, even if you watch, if you even if you showed them Stranger Things, that would seem alien, if you pardon the pun. Yeah, I mean, they would actually really more or less be a child of the 1970s than really anything mm. to do with the 80s. I mean, they'd just be coming out of disco. 
Yeah. So maybe show him, yeah, maybe show him some sort of disco stuff, some stuff from the 70s to help on that. Some stuff retroactively made made today that is set in the 70s, that sort of thing, to help them understand how their era is perceived to the modern eye. Absolutely. And, you know, you kind of have to just gently indoctrinate them in because if you were to just throw them into the deep end of the pool, that would be almost cruel. Yeah. Like it would have to be baby, baby, baby steps just to understand this is different like this now, this is different now. Coke tastes. Oh no, you would, they wouldn't have been alive in they New did, Coke. They didn't by even 1980. experience New Coke yet. <laughs> Coke still tastes the same as you remember it tasting. It's fine. Uh, they, they had a bit of a bump a bit later on, but that's fine. But just show them things that did exist in their time, but also introduce things that are new, like get them a Coke, but pay with a contactless payment way or that sort of thing. You say, hey, look, this is still the same. We do it a little bit differently, but it's still fundamentally the same thing. Absolutely. So there's no great answer to this question. And we were doing this quite intentionally off the cuff just to kind of mm. see, get, give us an organic response of how we would face this if we were, if it kind of just dropped into our lap. But there are so many elements that undoubtedly you aren't thinking of. And if you're listening to this episode, especially if you're listening on YouTube, leave a comment down below for how you would choose to indoctrinate somebody that's coming here for the first time since 1980, whether it be stuff that we've mentioned or the great many things undoubtedly we never even thought about. Yeah, please do tell us down below. We as as much as we enjoy answering these questions, we enjoy hearing your answers to these questions just as much because they're always very insightful and interesting. Oh, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. So we'd like to thank our patron for submitting this question. This was definitely one of the more challenging ones, to be sure. And if you want to support AD History and help us make the AD History you deserve, you can do so by going over to Patreon at patreon.com slash AD History Podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash AD History Podcast, and you can donate to us on a monthly basis beginning at $3 a month or higher, which include getting the new episodes 48 hours early, in addition to its Director's Cup, where it's a bit more of an in-studio feel, and there are parts of the episode that we include in that that don't make the greater public cut. Doesn't take anything away from the public cut, but it adds some stuff to it that I think you guys will enjoy. Of course, the $5 tier regarding being able to submit a Patreon-submitted question. Or if you're on YouTube, we now also have a one-time donation through PayPal towards AD History because we know somebody can't always donate on a month-to-month -month basis, but they want to help out the show. And that's most certainly available there in the space down below. But we'd like to thank you guys so much for helping support us. It's helping us do a lot of amazing things that you are going to benefit from very soon. Let's put it that way. And once again, thank you. We want to hear your thoughts on this question as well. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from... Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna. And that little musical bit there that we used during the mid-roll is actually kind of interesting. Uh, it was given to us through a, a fan of the channel 
the person who did that keyboard bit there, Patrick, you'll find very interesting. His name is Adam Eppolito. He actually played and toured with John Lennon. Huh. Very impressive. Isn't that cool? And he's also yeah, did the keyboard bit on Cool and the Gang's very famous song, Celebration. Celebrate huh. good times. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we apparently, apparently the show has a slightly larger reach than we thought. So that was a really cool thing to have there at the mid-roll. And we really like to thank National Nervous Breakdown for sending us in another bit there that we could use in our mid-roll. Really but Patrick, cool stuff. thank you very much. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Just It's so cool. You never realize the people that you, you reach sometimes, you know. Mm. But in any case, the topic you're about to get into is really great because we addressed it in our most recent third century, What We Missed. We kind of caught up on it, but a lot of it was actually teasing for the big enchilada that was going to come here in the fourth century. And you're getting to hear it to that today. And of course, that is the true founding of the Gupta Empire itself. And with that, Mr. Foote, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, this is a really big moment uh, in Indian history. And it's because this was the start of the Gupta Empire. Well, well, kind of. Though we mentioned we mentioned in previous episodes that the seeds of the Gupta Empire were planted way earlier. And that was actually back in the last century. So why are we talking about it now? The Gupta Empire started in the last century. Why am I also saying here the Gupta Empire started? Well, it's because it was in this decade that the Gupta Empire found its first truly great leader. And that was in the shape of Chandra Gupta. And it was he who expanded the Gupta Empire from being just one of India's many small provincial powers on the subcontinent into the huge empire it became that took up so much of what we would now call India. And it was in this decade where that expanded started to take shape. However, I want to go back further. Further. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's great to sort of lay the groundwork and to understand, because we haven't really dedicated that much time to India. We've dropped in and out of it, but to truly understand that this is our first proper introduction to what was going on on the subcontinent as we now know it at this time. It's worth knowing what's happening before this time as well. And as I mentioned, the Gupta Empire at its peak looks like it took up much of modern India. But this was not the first empire to do so. And before the Gupta Empire, we had the Maurya Empire. And this huge Maurya Empire covered much of modern India and the surrounding nations. And this uh, Maria Empire lasted from 322 BC to 184 BC, and it was founded by one Chandragupta Maira. So, based on the fact that this greater Gupta Empire at this point is really going to expand, and the fact that its leader is going to become known as Chandragupta as well, I'm I'm assuming there's no coincidence there. From what I could tell, this second Chandragupta, are, are the Gupta Empire's Chandragupta, yeah. he seems to have just, he seems to have just had that name. Maybe he was named in honor of the uh, Chandragupta Maria of this empire. Not 100% sure. It could have just been a coincidence, but I imagine perhaps this, this guy was named in honor of this previous empire in hopes that he would become another great emperor. Uh, okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, and it did, going back to this, Mariah Chandragupta Mariah, he is seen he is seen as something of a national hero in India, and he's seen as being the first person to unify all of India. And 
he's also seen as saving the nation from sort of poor administration and foreign rule. Without him, he he, he was one that allowed India to be a fuller, stronger power to defend itself from foreign attackers. And as I mentioned, his empire came to an end in 184 BC. And there isn't one fact as to why it collapsed. It just slowly dissolved as these things often do. And its dissolution is seen as starting way earlier than 184 BC. Uh, Marai's third emperor, Ashoka, he ruled from uh, 268 BC to 232 BC. I find it interesting. That name is awfully close to one of the more popular modern Star Wars characters who's become quite beloved. So by the name of Ahsoka. So that's yeah. a little, little getting touching close there. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but who knows when it comes to George Lucas, considering that character's inception still happened under the oversight of George Lucas. Yeah, I am. Uh, when I was researching this episode, I was like, gosh, that's incredibly similar to Ahsoka's name. In fact, I thought it was the same, but it's not. There's not a slight quite. spelling difference. No. A little difference so there. I was wondering if there was any link between the two. I'm not sure. This Ahsoka, this Ashoka is a man. Ahsoka from Star Wars is female. I'm not sure. Who knows? What it's it was, hard but... to know. With, with George Lucas, he was obviously always so famous for blending East and West. Sometimes it's almost impossible to tell. But I do believe Ahsoka was actually Dave Filoni's. Uh, mm-hmm. character the one he came up with but he is george lucas's number one acolyte so who who can say <laughs> no who can say it in regards to star wars names that's something i need to cover at some point there's some bizarre names in that universe uh so anyway <laughs> star wars chat aside ashoka this emperor ashoka, he ruled from 268 to 232 bc and he is seen as being the mariah empire's last great leader only three and they were gone and after his death, things started to fall apart and the empire and uh, another empire didn't actually immediately take over the Maori Empire. Instead, India kind of became what it was before the Maori Empire. It became a series of smaller states and kingdoms and uh, provinces like it was uh, for so much time. And by the time the Mariah Empire ended in 184 BC, it was just another one of those smaller states. And I think you might wonder, Patrick, why have you mentioned this? And I just think it's worth mentioning this deeper history to India because, Paul, a lot of people often like to depict India as just being a series of independent kingdoms and empires and then the British put it all together and made more or less the modern Indian borders as we have it today. But India, much like China, you could argue, it, it's gone through a history of being one united entity to being separate states, to one united entity and there and back again. I just think that's worth mentioning, mentioning here. We see that not only with this Gupta Empire, but also the Mariah, the Mariah Empire as well. Well, certainly what we understand today as India is one thing that was undeniably, certainly in terms of its geographical shape, is undeniably and inextricably linked to the experience under the British Raj and then prior to that under the East India Company, where, and this is something that I would actually like to really clarify, because it's something we kind of touched upon earlier in terms of the, the British kind of helping create this nationalist Indian identity, which was something relatively new at that time. The way that the Raj largely worked and even with the East India Company, the way that the British really actually did a very effective, you know, effective being a value neutral descriptor of running the Indian subcontinent in that time and that place, which, of course, was under the British Raj, you had many different states and principalities that were all being run by smaller rulers. 
And one of the ways that the British, of course, help maintain control over it, that is by keeping them fighting with each other. But in terms of creating that national Indian identity, they also helped create a, a power that a lot of these states and a lot of these different people, because the Indian subcontinent is so diverse, it's silly. Mm. In the best so way. Diverse. Silly in the best way, because it, it brings so much to the table. And the British Raj, in many ways, in terms of this whole concept of Indian nationalism, gave a lot of these people a common adversary from which to unite. And even when they did achieve independence from Great Britain, obviously there was some definite changes. Obviously, Pakistan broke off, Burma, now Myanmar became its own thing. And of course, they also had very direct relationships with places like Nepal. We still have Gurkhas today. Mm. Nepalese still try to become Gurkhas in the British army, to be sure. So it's interesting how this kind of works. But no, the, this whole concept of India, it is kind of this rising and falling of powers where it will, of course, shatter into many different places, then come together. It's very interesting that you should make that comparison with China, because I do think in some ways it's actually really quite apt. Mm. And it, it's just what came to mind. Obviously, I have I've done a fair bit of research on China and just doing this brought that to mind as well. But we're going to try and get a bit more in the ballpark of today's episode. And that's with the early formation of the Gupta Empire. So as mentioned, this Marai Empire truly dissolved in 184 BC. And this means by 1 AD, which was the start of this podcast, India was a series of smaller states yet again. And one of those many smaller states formed in 240 AD. So we're kind of getting closer. And that was, of course, the Gupta state. And of course, Paul, that's why you mentioned it in our What We Missed of the Third Century, because the Gupta Empire did have its origins in the second century, in about 240 AD. And You bet your booty uh, it does. Exactly. And the exact origins of the Gupta people aren't exactly known to us. And they're thought to have either come from modern Uttar Pradesh or Bila, and they're two modern states in India. Uh, it was definitely part of northern India, that's for sure. And to kind of have an idea, the Gupta Empire's capital of Pataliputra uh, is in. It was in the modern Bira state, Bila uh, state. So you could lean towards saying the Gupta Empire has origins there. It's definitely northern India. We're not exactly sure. Probably one of those two states. But it's and in the ballpark. It's in the ballpark for sure. And it was in 240 AD that the Gupta Empire was founded by one Sri Gupta. And of course, it's worth mentioning here that it wasn't. It didn't come into being as one massive empire. This was just another smaller empire on what we now call the Indian subcontinent. It, it, it didn't come out the gate as a massive thing. And its first leader was one Shri Gupta. And I think Shri means holy or blessed. It's the same Shri in if it, if it's the same Shri as we get in Sri Lanka, it means something along those lines. So it would be like holy Gupta. Yeah, we talked about Sri Gupta and the what we missed. And unfortunately, not a heck of a lot is known about him either. But he is a pivotal figure in all of this because we're not yeah. even talking about this today without the the actions that Sri Gupta took in order to basically put a foundation for this Gupta empire that we are now discussing. So, yeah, Sri Gupta ruled the Gupta empire from its inception in circa 240 AD till about 280 AD when he died. And uh, he was, of course, as this was an empire, he was taken over. His son took over of Gatokacha. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He took over and Gatokacha ruled from about 280 till 319. And in 319 AD, 
Chandragupta took over. This is the second Chandragupta. So finally, so just just shy of uh, today's uh, decade, our Chandragupta took over. So uh, this makes our Chandragupta became known as Chandragupta the first. He was the grandson of the Gupta Empire's founder, Sri Gupta. So he wasn't that far descended from its roots. He was very much at the source of this thing. And other than that, we seem to know very little of his earlier life. And we aren't even truly sure if his reign started in 319 AD. That's just the that's just the day we'd like to go with. It, it, most historians uh, agree that his reign started in the first quarter of the 4th century. And whatever the case, when he took over, he took the Gupta Empire to the next level. He took it from just a small local state or kingdom to making it one of the largest empires in Indian history. And how exactly did he get so much of the subcontinent under his control? And normally, this is where we start talking about military might and forcing this land using his powerful army. And while the military does play a role in all this, uh, he actually started his larger empire in another way. His first expansion of the Gupta Empire came to be thanks to the skillful art of marriage. Yeah, this is some Game of Thrones stuff going on right now. Diplomacy through matrimony. Mm-hmm. Something, something we've seen quite often in AD history and other parts of the world, and we will see it more often. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Another Indian, quote-unquote, Indian kingdom at this time was the Lishavi kingdom, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, this resided in the uh, Kathmandu Valley, and it's actually in modern-day Nepal. So like, like I'm saying, that's a great example of the difference between India and the Indian subcontinent. An Indian kingdom can reside in modern-day Nepal. And the princess of this kingdom was one Princess Kumala Devi. And uh, this marriage, so of Princess Kumala Devi and our man Chandragupta got married. I don't know how they met. I don't have their cute meat or anything like that. That's not in the history books, unfortunately. Certainly didn't meet on Tinder. No, definitely not. Uh, but their marriage meant that Likachavi kingdom fell under Chandragupta's rule. And we got to wonder, Paul, was this a marriage of convenience or do you actually love each other? Well, based on the strategic implications and benefits that occurred, it's at the very least, the very least, a marriage of convenience. But did you find anything that spoke to the nature of their relationship interpersonally as husband and wife? Unfortunately, I did not. And I did have a good look around. I thought, is there anything but... Nothing is really coming up, unfortunately. So it does sound like it was primarily a strategic marriage. But I'm sure they hopefully got on to some degree. We can only hope, right? Well, I would imagine that would be a nice benefit, to be sure. But if we've learned anything about political marriages, at least in terms of the history of Europe, we've definitely learned that, one, it's very, very seldom, in many cases, that there's any sort of romantic attraction between the two individuals involved. And two, despite its intention as a political marriage, it doesn't always really pan out in the way that everybody hoped it would initially. But this seems no. to be an exception. Yeah, so this one actually was quite prosperous because this marriage not only gave Chandragupta more land and a larger army, but also a very vital resource. 
the Lechavi kingdom was rich in iron ore, and this uh, benefited Chandragupta in a couple of ways. This iron, of course, allowed him to forge greater weapons and armor for his army, but also proved to be a highly valuable trading commodity. So this flooded the now larger Gupta empire with weapons and wealth, and it made the Gupta army incredibly powerful unsurprisingly and this in turn allowed Chandragupta to easily claim many of India's other empires just taking them down one by one and it just grew uh, his, his his empire it's definitely a strategic windfall yes yes definitely uh, it's a marriage with benefits <laughs> <laughs> yeah leave it at that <laughs> leave it. well put my friend yeah, but it, it's worth noting we aren't 100% sure that this is what happened. Uh, it's definitely the most popular theory on how the Gupta Empire started their rise. And unlike Rome, Indian history at this time has not been as well preserved. And we're always so fortunate to have such well-documented Roman history. As you said, Paul, they like taking their me- the, the minutes at their meetings. So long as they survive, they are invaluable to students of history, historians, and you and I. Yeah, and during his time as the uh, Gupta Emperor, he grew his land immeasurably. And he even gave himself a new title. Maharaja Hilaja is what Chandragupta I became known as, and that meant King of Great Kings. And yeah, that's definitely something that is awfully similar to the titles that are taken by the Shah of the Sassanid Empire, which go by, and we've heard this before in our last season, haven't we, Patrick? Shahan Shah, the king of kings. Yeah, it's a title that popped up throughout history in Rome's east, I will say, because where the Sassanid Empire were and where India are, quite distant, quite quite a bit of distance between the two of them. So it's impressive to hear this title cropping up, but it's just a name that clearly had resonance in this in in the larger towards the east of the Roman Empire. Oh, you got that right. This does not seem to be any sort of coincidence as far as we can tell no no not at all no and um chandragupta the first his reign lasted from 319 till 335 so not that long just a bit over the each side of this episode's decade and by the end of his reign the gupta empire was in a far superior state than it had ever been and his son samudragupta he took over and he continued this trend and he reigned actually from 335 till 375. So that's about 40 years or so. And he continued this expansion. And by about 250 AD, so this is going out of the circle of our episode, the Gupta Empire covered most of India. It took up a huge expanse of the Indian subcontinent. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the later rule that's coming up of Samudra Gupta mm. and how long it was, you're looking, that's 40 years. That's 40 that's- years. Think about all the rulers that we have seen of these various empires, wherever they may be, Mm. have lasted. And 40 years puts you in very rarefied territory. It really does. I mean, I'm kind of spoiled, Paul, because what's Lizzie on now? She's almost on 60 years, 70 years. So she she was coronated, what, 52 or 52? So, yeah, so 70 years Elizabeth II's coming up to... So I'm kind of like, eh, 40 years isn't that long, but that's just because of where I'm living, what time what oh, yeah. time in history I'm living through and what part of the world I'm living in. But no, make no mistake, 40 years reigning 
in antique in India in antiquity is damn impressive. Especially when you consider all the immense amount of threats that invariably come with ruling in that kind of autocratic fashion that you have to deal with throughout your entire rule. You know, the yeah. various enemies, the people that are trying to usurp you. And to put all of that off in one way or another to some degree for 40 years is outstanding. I mean, that puts you in Augustus territory in terms of longevity of rule. Yeah, no, he's one of, and I'm sure we'll be covering his reign as we continue for AD history. But it was, it, that's for another time. It was Chandragupta I, his uh, father, that really got the ball moving on making the Gupta Empire a world class empire. And the Gupta Empire's impact on modern India to this day, as you mentioned, Paul, in what we missed, has been huge. Today in modern India, the Gupta Empire is seen as the nation's golden age. Many things of importance to India of Gupta origin, like as you mentioned, Paul, Gupta art and Gupta architecture is seen as one of India's finest. And the Gupta Empire made great contributions to maths and science. Do you want to know one of the really interesting things the Gupta Empire created, Paul? And this is something you kind of just presume would have existed. It shows you just how impressive that they made something that is so integrated into our lives, into the world, something that you'd think it would just exist the same way air, air or gravity does. Now, now, you, now you're leaving me here with bated breath. Okay, maybe I'm being a bit too um, over-exaggerated. They invented the decimal system. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think that that is something in which there can be any degree of unacceptable hyperbole. That like, is huge. Imagine, like you, you just think it would exist. You think you, you'd kind of think whoever invented numbers would invent the decimal system as well, but apparently not. So I didn't have much more info on that. There's a really great article um, explaining all the things the um, Gupta Empire brought us, but that was the highlight of it to me: the decimal system. Uh, we've used they're just a part of that they're, they're part of numbers they're part of mathematics today when you think about the middle east and when you think about the, its history as well as the history of the indian subcontinent here think about how much in general you put the you amalgamate the two how much hmm. they have contributed to our modern conception and expression of mathematics yeah that was just about i was going to rattle on about that just now paul but yeah the modern Numbers, at least me and you, Paul, use most of the world uses the modern they're Indian, they're of Indian origin, or at least the, of the Arabic numerals. Middle, Arabic numerals, that's the term. Yeah, they're of that origin. And that's amazing. Like we give Rome a lot of credit for most things. But when it comes to numbers and maths, the Middle East, Arabia, and India, they played such a vital role. And it's worth highlighting again just the Gupta Empire's invention of the decimal system, the bloody decimal system, Paul. That's amazing. No unacceptable level of hyperbole there in terms of its <laughs> importance. I, I love that. That that's that's yeah. where AD history is really firing. Yeah. And it was it wasn't just maths they were good at. They did some pretty impressive Sanskrit poems as well. And this ancient golden period in Indian history that modern Indians would look back on with pride. Does it remind you of anything, Paul? If you think back to the very early days of AD history, does it remind you of anything at all? Well, I think it's pretty fair to say that if you were to make one comparison, and I only had one, you have to consider how modern China, minor Han Chinese in particular, tend to view the Han dynasty, both iterations of it. 
Yeah, and that that's what came to mind for me. Like I remember when I was first studying, when we first began AD history, I was looking at the Han Dynasty. And it really was seen as that golden age of Chinese history. And so many celebrated Chinese creations came from the Han Dynasty. And that's that kind of pride, how Han Chinese people hold up to the Han Dynasty, seems to be the same sort of pride modern Indians hold in the Gupta Empire. And with good reason. Decimals, Paul. Decimals. <laughs> but on top of that, you think about if you and I were to stop, and we'll take the Taj Mahal out of this because it's mm. not we're not quite there yet. But if you think about a variety of different architectural structures that are really just burned into our mind's eye when we think about the Indian subcontinent or even just India itself today, so much of that is coming from this Gupta period. And that is undeniable. And it truly, from everything I can tell, even in the brief overview I did in What We Missed, it was abundantly clear that this was a very special time. Mm-hmm. However, I do think we've probably even talked about the biggest impact that Go to Empire made to India and the Indian subcontinent. And it's kind of parallels what was happening in Rome at this time. In the same way Christianity was spreading through Rome in this decade and this century, Hinduism was spreading through the Indian subcontinent pool. And it was actually the Gupta Empire who began this mass spread of Hinduism across India, because the Gupta Empire was a Hindu yeah. empire. Yeah. And we even kind of spoke about this a little bit in what we missed regarding Sri Gupta, mm. is in his case, even though Hinduism has definitely become ingrained, in the case of Sri Gupta, at least, he also most certainly did patronage for not just Hinduism, but Buddhism and Jainism as well. So mm. there, there's a lot going on here, but it definitely appears like this is a time where Hinduism is really taking hold, and the Guptas seem to be quite okay with that. Yeah, so as the Gupta Empire spread across the subcontinent, as did the Hindu religion too, and of course, to this day, Hinduism is India's dominant religion yeah it's it's the mate it's the official de facto religion of course there are many other religions across india your christianity is popular of course islam buddhism they can all be found in india and the indian subcontinent but and when you look at hinduism especially when you compare it to uh, the religions you just did its origins are almost unfathomably old yeah like even though i'm saying this way it got popular it i, I believe it's the oldest big religion. I'm sure there's some ancient, tiny religions we don't really know of that still have roots in parts of the world. But in regards to large-scale religions that are still on this planet, Hinduism, I believe, is the eldest of them by a long shot. I think you're correct. I think you yeah. are correct on that point. So it, it's understandable why modern India looks so fondly back on this golden age of the Gupta Empire, and it all kicked off right here in this decade. And it was thanks to Emperor uh, Chandra Gupta I, and of course his choice in women. Hmm, yes, of course. And as I mentioned, this is the empire's start. This is only at the beginning, and we are definitely going to be talking about the Gupta Empire in upcoming episodes, Paul. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to having another big player on the world stage. Here's an interesting question that we can leave up, um, especially you know, considering the theme of a golden age in which people look back on. on. On some level, one, are we experiencing one right now 
in the West in particular, in a, in a grander kind of scheme of things? And two, in experiencing it, would we necessarily be able to readily identify it? You know what, Paul, just as I was, just as you were saying that, I was about to pose a question to you. And that was, do you think America's had its golden age yet? But you, you, that's a very, like you said, it's a very good question as well. Are we aware we're in a golden age? I think, I don't think we are, unless things are going really well. I, I think golden ages are made, like we say, like most memories you can look back on fondly. It's nostalgia. It's basically nostalgia times 10 when we look back and think of a golden age. You don't realize how good things were until they're over with. So I imagine the Gupta Empire probably didn't know they were in a golden age, but now we can look back at it. But, but as I was sort of thinking to you, Paul, do you think America has had its golden age yet? This is very difficult to answer because when you're knee deep in it, it's very difficult to gain any sort of meaningful perspective. I would say it's easier to identify when a historically significant moment is occurring contemporaneously in the moment than it is to necessarily come to any sort of accurate conclusion of whether your time in which you exist and where you exist is undergoing a golden age. And I say that because when you look back at history and you look at contemporaneous accounts of how people felt at the time they were living, almost exclusively you'll feel, especially in more modern history terms, They'll always generally think, oh, you know, this is the hardest and worst of times. But in reality, especially in the more modern history context, there is this reoccurring theme of, oh, you know, we are living through the most difficult time with the greatest challenges. And sometimes it takes decades to realize, well, they may have thought that at the time, but now with greater distance and hopefully a bit more objectivity, that is something that we can more better determine. So I couldn't possibly answer that with any form of accuracy or certainty, unfortunately. But what I will say is that for all the difficulties that our countries are experiencing in a number of different ways, I'm quite certain that this is still, my answer to you is the best one I can give you is, I am certain that this is the only time that I would want to be alive. And I would agree with that, Paul. I think this is the only time I would want to be alive as well right now. And going back to our concept of a golden age, part of me is tempted to say they're political constructs. Do you think golden ages are used for a political reason? Because I think different people would have different opinions on what exactly a golden age is. I think if you were to ask certain British people, what was the UK's golden age? They may say Elizabethan, the, the classic rule Britannia phase, rule Britannia, Britannia ruled the seas, the, the peak of the empire, if you will, about 1600s. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I that's, so. that's roughly when you're starting to talk about the first British empire. Yeah. Um, part of me would be tempted, I think a lot of people would say, but was that really a golden age? And it's this concept of a good old Britain that inspires a lot of people to do certain things but other people with different political ideas might be like well that wasn't a very good time in british history that's quite a dark time so i think the concept of a golden age is very debated depending on a lot of things depending on your opinions on things because a lot of people would say we're a golden age in britain i personally wouldn't be too sure on that <laughs> golden age is definitely something and any element of history is something that can obviously be used for a specific political purpose. 
Mm. But when I'm thinking of it, I'm not thinking of it in political terms per se. I'm thinking of it in terms of more timeless accomplishments, things like Mm. culture, things like various media, books, shows, theater, various works that have been made, all of that sort of thing that add to the flavor that we come from are various technological innovations. The creation of the decimal system. Yeah, the, <laughs> that being one among many. So for me, I'm not thinking of it in a political sense whatsoever. I'm t- thinking more about the elements that we have created today that will mm. last long beyond our current strife, political or otherwise. So, well, yeah, absolutely. This concept of a nostalgic greater time, a golden era has been used for many a different purpose, politically, to be most sure. When I'm answering that question, I'm thinking about it in terms of timeless achievement. Interesting. That's a much more sensible approach to it, Paul. And I would say in that case, then quite possibly the Gupta Empire could quite unarguably be be seen as a golden age because just so much of importance to this day in India and the wider world came from there. It is my feeling that regardless of what we look back on as a golden age, that our greatest focus should always be making today the golden age. That's a very, very profound statement, Paul, especially in the heights of a pandemic. Brave stuff to say. But we are, in our own special way, living through a golden age right now, golden age of information, of technology, that's for sure. When you simply look at the various practicalities, technology, and logistics that go into this very show and even making it possible when you go back and you start sussing out and tweezing the various things that needed to happen in order to make this arrangement possible for even this podcast you will be blown over it's it's, it's an intellectual exercise that i think has actually a great deal of benefit to give us a bit more perspective on where we are today but my feeling is definitely For all that it's worth, we should always be working to making today that golden age. Completely, Paul. I think that's very positive of you, Paul. I think that's a a bit of of good old-fashioned Paul positivity is what the world could do right now. I can think of no higher (laughs) compliment. Is that all you have for us today? That is all I have for us today, Paul. I'm very excited to, as I just said, I'm very excited to introduce to Gupta Empire to the world stage because I don't believe they're going anywhere anytime soon if memory serves. They got a couple of centuries ahead of them. Yeah. So we look forward to what they get up to. I'm looking forward to it immensely. And us here, you there. We'll be back right after work from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. 
It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.